about history from a whole new context. Welcome to Podtextualizing the Past. Sue Stanfield with the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso. And today we will be discussing the first government of the United States and that first governing document, the Articles of Confederation. Dr. Liz Covart um, will provide us the information about the topic. I'm particularly excited to interview her because she works with one of the best podcasts about U.S. history, Ben Franklin's World, a podcast about early American history. I encourage all of you to check it out. It's just wonderful. So welcome, Liz. Thank you very much for having me, Sue. So I want to say kind of one clarification before we get started for um, the listeners, and that is that, you know, this might be the first government of the United States, but it's not the first government in North America. Native Americans created governments, the British and other colonizers created governments, the individual British colonies created governments. Um, however, with the Declaration of Independence adopted by the Second Continental Congress in place, there was a need to create a form of government for the newly created nation. And so I'm wondering if you could um, take a moment and explain to us what existed before the official call for independence, but after the, the war has begun. So what, what's happening in like 1775? Sure. So we all know that on April 19, 1775, the shot heard round the world, or so-called shot heard round the world, was fired at Lexington and Concord. No one really knows whether it was the American or the British, but that does set Great Britain and her 13 North American mainland colonies at war with each other. So how do you govern this war? Well, Massachusetts had already started to figure out this problem because as retribution, as punishment for the Boston Tea Party on December 16, 1773, Great Britain passed a series of coercive acts. That's what Great Britain called them, the coercive acts. But here in the colonies, the Americans called them the intolerable acts. And there were five acts in these set of acts. And one of them was the Massachusetts Government Act, which basically appointed a British, uh, a royal governor who was a military general, General Thomas Gage, as a governor of Massachusetts and shut down legally the holding of any sort of civic government by the people. And if you know anything about colonial New England, you know that they're run by their town governments. So Massachusetts starts electing people to the extra legal. This is not a legal body, but it is the governing body of the revolutionaries in Massachusetts called the Massachusetts Provincial Congress. And what you start to see happen in other colonies is they kind of follow Massachusetts's lead. On the local level, you have committees of correspondence. When the war kind of gets going on, you these committees of correspondence that were just communicating and trying to co maybe coordinate a little action between other colonies and other towns turn into committees of safety and correspondence. Um, so these committees of safety were basically saying, okay, you know, here I am in Albany, New York, and we have problems, you know, with the war. You know, the Continental Army is going to move in. We have been the headquarters for the last three wars. We need to coordinate this war effort. We need to make sure we have enough supplies. We need to make sure that our citizens are, are prepared for war. And this is these are the types of things that a committee of safety would do on the local level. And then at the colony-wide level, or I should say the rebellious colony-wide level, you have these provincial congresses. Um, so it's kind of like this tiered system where you have the provincial congress, 
Then you have these local committees of safety, and that's really what's governing these towns. And it's kind of confusing to me at the moment because uh, I'm still early in this research as to who called for it first. Um, but you have this idea circulating that we should really have some sort of Continental Congress. And what the Continental Congress was meant to be was not really a governing body, but a forum where all the 13 colonies could send representatives to coordinate their actions, air out their grievances, their concerns about the war, and allow member, you know, the representatives that are elected from these 13 colonies negotiate a coordinated sense of action. So you have the first Continental Congress. It meets in September 1774. And what they decide to do is to put the colonies on a wartime footing. They write to the crown. John Dickinson is the primary author of this document, just stating their grievances and a little bit about what they'd like to have happen. They'd like to have those coercive acts or those intolerable acts repealed. And they decide that they're also going to implement a non-exportation, non-importation um, agreement. And that is to take effect more in 1775. Uh, but the idea was, is that if all the 13 colonies decided that they were not going to import British goods, then they could put economic pressure on the British crown from the merchants to end these acts that um, the colonies don't like and to end the act of no representation, no taxation without representation, because at this time... Great Britain believes in virtual representation, which means you don't actually have to have an actual representative in parliament. There's enough members of parliament that somebody will be representing your view and the Americans just never buy that. So that's that's kind of the government that you have is really those provincial congresses, committees of safety. And then you have this kind of larger organizing uh, intercolonial cooperative in the Continental Congress. And that's what exists in 1775. Okay. Um so things start to progress. They um, write, then adopt the Declaration of Independence. So what what happens? I mean, how is there a government that that runs the war, or is it still done on a colonial or state basis? Um, you know, do they do they even try to create a nation really early on? Like, do they have a flag? Do they, you know, have independent currency? You know, do they even, um, you know, do anything to kind of create a unified cultural identity? Yeah. So I think what's important is to pay attention to a, a bit of the events that happen um, between 1775 and 1776. As we've already established, war breaks out in April of 1775. And then it becomes really important, as you say, to coordinate a governing body. So you do have these, you know, committees and provincial congresses that we talk about break out. But then New Hampshire, when the Second Continental Congress starts to meet in May of 1775, New Hampshire sends a letter and basically says, our royal governor has left and there's nobody governing our colony. So what should we do? And the Second Continental Congress, which is basically has the same purpose as the first Congress, which is it, it doesn't really have governing power so much as it's a forum for the 13 colonies to meet and to debate and organize their next steps. The 13 colonies in Second Continental Congress basically give New Hampshire permission to start writing a state constitution. And, and you see in, 77, in late 75 and 76, early 1776, as you see a lot of these states, these colonies turn states, writing state constitutions, especially after the Declaration of Independence is adopted in July of 1776. 
Now, the Declaration of Independence is another good point. We, I think every, a lot of people are familiar with Richard Henry Lee presenting the Virginia Resolution on June 7, 1776, before the Second Continental Congress. And we all know this is where he stands up and say, these state, you know, these colonies ought to be free and independent states. They ought to basically be free of Great Britain's power and be safe to govern themselves. And that's the part of the resolution from Virginia that we always focus on. But there are actually three parts to that resolution. The first was to create and adopt a declaration of independence, to declare independence. So that's the famous part of the resolution. The second part was the United States needed a new government. You know, if they're going to start this uh, country, they actually need a governing body for the national body. And the Continental Congress is not it. It was not designed to be a central governing body. It was designed to be a cooperative forum. Um, So the second resolution basically says that we need to draft articles of confederation and send them to the states to be ratified so we can institute a new national a new national government to coordinate the war effort. And the third part is to go out and seek uh, foreign aid. So the Americans never had enough money or enough manpower or military knowledge to win the war. They really needed European assistance. And at this point, they have a big problem. They're they're living in a world of empires and monarchies, and they're overthrowing a monarchy. And what they have going in their favor is that the French and Indian War, which is the big war for empire that happens in North America and around the world, it's often considered to be the first global world war, ends in 1763. And it ends with Great Britain and the colonies even being the big winners of this war and France and Spain being humiliated. And France, Spain and Great Britain are the three big powers in Europe at that time. So what the Americans are banking on, while the reason why Virginia pushed for this third part of the resolution is they want to go to the French and be like, hey, would you like another shot at Great Britain? Would you like a chance to, you know, win back some of the defeat that you suffered in the last war? Come join us. Come help support our revolution. And of course, as we know, the Americans will do that, but they don't, the French won't come in formally until 1775. You know, informally, France and Spain will provide all sorts of aid through their Caribbean possessions. Uh, but formally, they're not going to provide any aid until at least 1778 um, so that there's there's that. So that's kind of what's going on. And that's, you know, that's what gives that resolution and the adoption of it is really what gives the Continental Congress the ability and permission to go about drafting what would become the first United States Constitution, the Articles of Confederation. So we always think of, you know, James Madison writing current constitution. Um, yeah, we have so much discussion in history classes about the ratification. How does this work for the Articles of Confederation? Is there a key author? Is there a debate or compromise to get it ratified? Or is it just so general that everyone's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> no, there was a committee that was adopted and created by the Second Continental Congress after that June 7, 1776 resolution. The leader, you know, that, that that's a committee that has members from all the 13 states. But the leader of that committee is John Dickinson. He's the penman of the revolution. That's how people knew him. He was, aside from Benjamin Franklin, the most famous American in all of the colonies, Because in 1766 and 1767, he writes this very famous pamphlet that circulated all over the colonies and all over Europe, protesting these acts of taxation without representation. And that pamphlet is known as Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania. 
And that farmer is John Dickinson. And of course, in reality, he owns a plantation uh, in Delaware. Uh, he owns lots of land in um, Pennsylvania and he owns a lot of slaves as well. Although he's not a formal Quaker, he, is, he grew up in a Quaker household and believed in Quaker beliefs. And during the war, he's one of the few founders that would free his enslaved people during the course of the war because he finds this very interesting and he writes it into his draft of the Articles of Confederation, you know, that there's a hypocrisy, right? That these Americans are fighting for freedom and liberty and yet they're keeping people enslaved. So John Dickinson writes what is known as the Dickinson draft of the uh, Articles of Confederation. There were other drafts. Benjamin Franklin wrote an earlier draft in 75. It circulates around members of congressmen, but it never comes before the uh, floor of Congress. Silas Dean, who is a covert member of Congress, like basically he's not elected to Congress after being elected for a few times. So Congress sends him to France to try and get foreign aid. And Dean supposedly wrote what is known as the Connecticut draft. Um, and it's just, you know, kind of similar to the Franklin draft, but very similar in the sense that it never makes the floor of Congress. And then John Dickinson in his official position as, you know, basically the chairperson of this committee, he writes the draft that Congress considers. And what may surprise people about this draft is um, a few things. First, the Articles of Confederation rightly gets a reputation of being a weak form of central government. And we can talk about why that is in, in a few minutes. Um, but it has this form of a, of a weak government. But in the Dickinson draft, he actually kind of forecasts some of the stronger elements of government that would come to bear in the United States Constitution in 1787. And of course, Americans at this point have no idea that a constitution of 1787 is going to come. They think that the Articles of Confederation, this wartime document, is going to be their formal government for a while. Um, Dickinson also writes into his draft of the Articles of Confederation the words, his or her. So this is the first time we have a gendered, you know, we have gendered pronouns in a draft of a formal constitution. And where the him or her uh, appears is in this article about religious freedom. So as I said, um, Dickinson wasn't a Quaker himself, but he was heavily um, influenced by Quaker beliefs. His wife was a formal Quaker. His parents were formal Quakers. Um, and he wanted to make sure, you know, that all people, including women, would have their right to religion protected by this constitution. And in a marginal note on his draft of the constitution, he basically writes a note about, shouldn't we abolish slavery? Like he does find it hypocritical again, that um, people are fighting for freedom and liberty and yet keeping African-Americans and Africans enslaved. Um, what happens is, and I'm still researching the details. There's not a lot in the act, in the actual formal records of the journals of the Continental Congress. Um, I'm finding a bit more in personal papers, but there's still a lot of work to be done. We don't really know how it was debated. It just kind of appears like, oh, we're talking about it in the journals of Continental Congress, but it can go for a long time without being debated. And this is because this is a constitution that is formed during wartime. When a big battle hits up in New England or New York or down south, Congress needs to take a break from debating the Articles of Confederation and ratifying this constitution to actually handling wartime measures, making sure that there's troops being sent, supplies being coordinated, money being coordinated uh, for this effort. Um, so Congress takes its time because it needs it uh, to debate this document, the document that eventually becomes the 13 Articles of the Articles of Confederation. Um, this first constitution are much different 
from what John Dickinson passed. Basically, there's a preamble like we associate with constitutions. It basically says that we're going to call this new country the United States of America. And then it delineates certain powers uh, in the government. It basically says we're going to give the national government the power to make war and peace. We're going to give it the power to arbitrate disputes in between the states. And it'll have the power to negotiate diplomatic treaties. Nowhere in this document is a power to tax and raise money. You know, it's got to ask permission from the states. And nowhere in this document um, does it stipulate um, a judiciary system or anything like this. So the states really have all that power. And um, that's the draft that's adopted by the Second Continental Congress sent out in November 1777 to the different 13 states to be ratified. And a lot of them ratify it right away, and others kind of hold out. The most famous holdout, of course, is Maryland, who will not ratify it until March of 1781. Wow. Well, it's been kind of exciting to hear you talk about John Dickinson. Uh, we, um, in my U.S. history class, we always read his Liberty song and listen to it. So it's nice to know he's active and still doing things uh, long after that's written. Um, so, you know, I understand that there's a need to take action during war. Um, but with the end of the war, you know, Battle of Yorktown and then in, in 83 signing the Treaty of Paris, how does the government function? Like, do they start realizing that they need to do more different things when they're, they're not at war? Do the states just kind of hunker down and, and, and rule themselves? What, what happens? Sure. So after Maryland finally get, you know, gives in and ratifies the Articles of Confederation, and they basically do it because France is really interested in having one body to negotiate with, not 13. They don't want to negotiate with 13 individual states. They want to you know, negotiate with one national government. They also think the chances of getting money repaid to them for this war will be better if there's just one government to deal with. Um, Maryland needed military aid and France said, sure, we'll help you out. And by the way, we'd really like you to ratify the Articles of Confederation and be be that last state um, because the Articles can't take effect until they're unanimously ratified. And if you know a little bit about the Ar the Confederation government, you'll know that all the bills, all the laws that the new United States wants to pass have to be unanimous. All 13 states have to be in agreement. Now think about how often that might have happened. You know, uh, we're talking about a time that's politically as divisive as the time we're living in today. You know, a lot of scholars are talking about that, um, as well as the Civil War, another divisive time in American history. So, you know, you can see how having a unanimous vote requirement might hobble uh, the new government. And it, and it surely is hobbled. Um, in terms of how this happens is so Maryland ratifies a document officially on March 1st, 1781. Immediately that date, the Second Continental Congress, which has been doing all the work of a national government, even though it is not the national government, that becomes the Confederation Congress. So members of the Second Continental Congress are now members of, of the Confederation Congress. And that is the um, body that sees the United States through the end of its war for independence. That is the body that basically sends John Jay, John Adams, and Benjamin Franklin out to negotiate the Treaty of Paris of 1783. But at home, you know, as the war ends, things are tricky. You know, you're talking about a place that was on a wartime footing. It's been devastated because the war has been fought here, which Americans, 
don't have a lot of experience with, except in the colonial period and the United States Civil War. Most wars that we know about have been fought abroad. Um, but that war, you know, the revolution happens here. So think about all your roads. They're in disrepair. Not that they were that great to begin with. They were basically like, you know, tree trunk lined paths uh, that were pretty dirty until you get the, the Pennsylvania Turnpike um, and other features of the transportation revolution coming in the 1790s and early 1800s. Um, you have an economy that was geared on a wartime economy um, that's pretty bad. Uh, so you're trying to transition that to a peacetime economy to get it up and going. You have a new nation that no one trusts. In fact, the one provision that Great Britain really wanted in the Treaty of 1783 was that the Americans would agree to pay their British creditors what they owed them before the war. And this is a point of contention. This is why we have, in part, why we have the War of 1812. It's because the Americans are like, no, we're just basically the Articles of Confederation government says, we're not going to make the states do this. Like we can recommend, which is all they had in their power was they could recommend that the states ask its citizens to pay back these war debts. Uh, but there's no enforcement mechanism, just like there's no enforcement mechanism for when, you know, say Delaware decides it's going to shirk um, it's, you know, requisition of its portion of the requisition of money for Congress, which Congress needs to pay its staff and to pay for things that the national government needs. So the states really retain all the power. And so what you see is a hodgepodge of things going on. Um, think of native negotiations with Native Americans. We know that after the war, many people in all areas of the country migrate west onto Native American lands. And so you have states like New York um, going out and negotiating for land on their own behalf, pa paving the way for these settlers that are coming and paving the way to give away their land to pay these men that they that fought in the Revolutionary War thinking they were going to get land as part of their bounty. So now that the war is over, these states have to pay up that bounty. So they need to free the land of its indigenous inhabitants. And of course, this is a process wrought with violence and not fair dealing. Um, so you have, on the one hand, the weak Articles of Confederation government trying to negotiate treaties with Native Americans that they can't enforce and states going out and conducting their own indigenous diplomacy. And so that's a mess. As we said, the Articles of Confederation government have no power to tax. They have to rely on the states to voluntarily send the basically the quota of money that they need, you know, the Congress needs um, to run. Uh, so it creates a lot of chaos in the early, the first early Republic period, you know, right after the war. It's a, it's a very chaotic period. In fact, some scholars say that the only successful thing that the Confederation government did was set up the Northwest Ordinances, which are these laws that basically lay out how territories will be formed in these Western lands west of the Appalachian. So we're talking about places like Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, how those territories will be laid out and when those territories will be eligible to become states in the union. Uh, and that's about the only good thing that we can say about the Confederation government is that it, it sorts out that problem. I was, when you were mentioning earlier that everything had to be unanimous, the first thing that came to my mind was, well, how did the Northwest ordinances ever pass with their, their position on slavery? And at that point, was an ordinance something that was treated differently and it just had to have a majority or were they able to persuade everyone to follow along? 
Well, we often talk about the Northwest Ordinance, but they're also sorting out land north of the old Northwest Territory. So again, the old Northwest Territory is what we consider the Midwest now. Um, But you also have states forming in like Kentucky and Tennessee, and those will famously be slave states. So um, I don't know exactly how the Northwest Ordinance is passed, but I do think that there's some sort of negotiation knowing that there's these free states and slave states that are being set up. Um, and they just needed a way to set up set up these states. And basically, at, at that point, slavery is determined by who's moving there. And you have a lot of people from the Northeast moving to the old Northwest and a lot of people from the South, you know, moving to I don't we don't really have a name for that region. But again, Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi. Now, that makes a lot of sense because I always think of it as just that little segment of the of the Midwest and forget that there are other other territories that have to be dealt with. Um, so why do you think they ultimately, is it just a question of taxation that made them want to revise or rewrite, create something new? There's certainly a lot to be said for the chaos and needing a new government that's going to, to rectify things, you know, and to put the United States on a better credit footing so it can get foreign investment to help boost its economy. That is a major reason. But I think we also need to take in the whole context of how the Articles of Confederation were created. You know, as I mentioned earlier, this is a wartime document. It is something that is like secondary. You know, we tend to think of the Constitutional Convention and men like Madison go in and they sit down for two months and they negotiate this form of government right behind closed doors. It's supposed to be a secret proceeding. It's dedicated to drafting a new constitution. They don't have the attention span or the luxury of that in 1777 and 1778, right? They they actually have a war to run and to deal with. And so, you know, people are only concerned with the formation of this government when there isn't a battle going on. Um, so in some ways it was a, a rushed situation, a situation of necessity that they had to come up with this federal government uh, to come up with foreign aid uh, that it needed to, to win and fight this war. Um, so I think, you know, the Constitutional Convention ultimately gives the Americans a second chance. I also think, you know, we think of the Articles of Confederation being a failure. Think about, again, the context in which they're formed. You have this revolution with no taxation without representation, you know, that the colonies believe that they're not representative in Parliament. They believe at this point that they're fighting a tyrannical and corrupt government and king. Um, so their biggest gripe is the fact that after the French and Indian war or seven years war ends in 1763, Great Britain is reorganizing its empire and it had largely been hands off in the North American colonies. But after the war, you know, it doubled its war debt. So it needs to raise revenue and it's reorganizing its new, it's now global empire. It has colonies now all over the world, Great Britain, and they want to take a stronger hand in North America. So part of this imperial reform is the fact that, you know, there's not as much local say as the colonists are used to. So think about that context, right? You have the Americans fighting this centralization and too much power of government. They're not all like John Dickinson and see a strong central government. They want to see power in the hands of local entities. And they see that the best way to do that is to allow the states to have more power than the national government. If the states have more power, then local governments will have more power and they won't have this problem of a tyrannical and corrupt large mega government trying to, to rule over them. And what the com- chaos of the Confederation period shows is like, actually, you need some strong central authority to organize things and and decla- you know make sure that taxes are raised and things are being paid for and debts being are being repaid. 
And that's what the Constitutional Convention is all about. So I think you have this period of peace and chaos, you know, economic chaos, especially. But you have this period of peace where all of a sudden Americans now have the time to dedicate themselves to thinking about, okay, this didn't work. What can we do here? Uh, And we didn't have time to do this in our first draft of government. What can we do there? And so, you know, if you think about it, constitutions like all founding documents are meant to solve a specific issue at a specific time. So the Declaration of Independence is really just meant to declare independence and air grievances against the king. It wasn't supposed to be this overarching document that we would think of as holding our national creed and our national identity in the document. And the Articles of Confederation were meant to solve the problem of a need for an organizing body to coordinate the war effort. And so that's what it did. So I don't think the founders ever thought that these founding constitutions would last, especially as long as the Constitution of 1787 is last. I think they saw these documents as something to be revised and reworked as as time as the times dictated and permitted. Well, one of the things I always ask our guests to do um, is to kind of help us contextualize the past by thinking about it with modern ideas. And so imagine that social media existed in the 1770s and 1780s. And I'm curious, like what kinds of hashtags might have been used to describe the Articles of Confederation or the Confederation Congress or what might have um, John Dickinson, you know, on his Instagram account uh, have used as, as hashtags? Wow, this is a really interesting question. And it calls for somebody who probably knows how to pun better than I do. But, uh, <laughs> you know, thinking about it, I think you can kind of group them. You know, one aspect of this is to secure foreign aid. So I think you could have hashtags like win the war or we love France, you know, or maybe even just foreign aid, because this is supposed to create a central body that is capable of negotiating and entering treaties with foreign governments and accepting loans from those foreign governments. Uh, So I think, you know, you'd have some of those hashtags. I do think that you'd have some, a hashtag about Western lands. You know, part of the big reason that Maryland holds out so long is that it is afraid that um, colonies like Virginia that have some of the first charters that were given these really ambiguous boundaries, you know, colonies like Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Virginia claim that they have all land rights west to the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and they don't, they know the Pacific Ocean is out there, but they have no idea how far it is. And small states like Maryland and Pennsylvania that don't have these ambiguous charters, right? They're concerned because while Pennsylvania has some land to give as war bounties, states like Delaware, New Jersey, and Maryland really don't. They're really tiny. And so what they're worried about is um, these states, these other states, you know, growing bigger and overpowering the small states. And one of the ways that they could have done that right is with taxation. If you have Western lands, you can sell those after the war and raise money to pay off your war debts. But if you don't have Western lands, you'll actually have to institute direct taxation on your citizens to raise the money that you need to pay off your war debts. So, you know, if you're living in Maryland at this time, you may just run over the border to Virginia and try and find some land in its Western lands to set up a farm so that you're not taxed directly. So I think Western lands or something about Western lands would have been a hashtag. Um, Maybe hold out Maryland if that was like a campaign slogan, hold out Maryland, you know, like don't, you know, go into this until you know that like, especially Virginia is going to give up its Western lands. And at the time that it, you know, France asked them to ratify it, um, Virginia 
um, Maryland was days, just days from knowing that Virginia had finally decided to relinquish its Western lands to the Union. Um, that was an act that was started by New York, another large state, um, that it was going to give a lot of its Western land claims to the new United States to be used in the common good. So that's how the United States ends up with the territory in the old Northwest and, it, and in some of the South is because states with large charter rights, land rights, had had relinquished those land claims for the common good. Um, and I think you probably would have seen a slogan about states' rights or local power, uh, you know, because there was always a fear that the United States might create a government that had the strong centralized authority of the British Empire. And they kind of get that in 1787, you know, 1789, when they ratify the Constitution, which is more centralized. Uh, but at that point, you know, everybody fears, you know, that they just don't need it and that this government will take over their lives. Um, and so I think you would have seen like keep keep power local um, as part of part of the cry in this, you know, and John Dickinson is a different guy. You know, if he's writing his hashtags, he's like strong government, you know, organizing <laughs> principles, freedom, freedom of religion for men and women, um, freedom for slaves. You know, those would have been some of his hashtags. But he thinks about this first government very differently than most congressmen in 1777. See, now I'm sitting here thinking, Lin-Manuel Miranda needs to write a musical about Dickinson. He's truly the forgotten founder. <laughs> he, he is, but that's because he didn't believe that the United States should declare independence in July 1776. He didn't think that the United States was ready. He thought it would sour relations, even with France. He thought it might do in any aid they might get from France because, you know, the United States was not consulting with France at this time. So he thought it was a really drastic step. He did see it as inevitable at this point. He does think he'll vote for it, but he thinks July 1776 is the wrong time. So this penman of the revolution that has written every famous document in early American history until the Declaration of Independence, which he doesn't get to write because he's not for independence in July 76, uh, gets forgotten because he wouldn't vote for independence. Well, this has been fantastic. I've learned a lot. It's been great talking to you. I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much for having me. Contextualizing the Past was created by Susan Stanfield, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Texas at El Paso, and is produced by Adrian Mesa from UTEP's Creative Studios.